You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So, um, I, I want to dive into uh, I want to dive into our sermon for today. You guys want to dive into that? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for the honor and the privilege uh, and the blessing that it is to come together um, with the rest of the church family today, to have the opportunity to worship you, to spend time in prayer with one another, to uh, kind of catch a vision for where you're taking us as a church, um, but most of all, God, to be in your presence and to hear from your word. God, I pray that your word would uh, be alive and clear to us today and that you would awaken hearts this morning. Lord, that you would um, draw us and invite us and compel us to come into your presence in, in, in such a way that our hearts would find satisfaction in you. And that out of that would flow lifestyles um, that would communicate the gospel to others. So that all throughout our community and our city, people would see other people from our church coming alive and communicating the message of the hope of the gospel and the hope of the cross of Jesus as you do work in our lives. So God, I pray that. I pray, God, that you would um, help our hearts to be tuned to what you would say in this final message in this series. And Lord, I pray that you would take it and use it to do much good in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So hey guys, as we come into uh, this last week uh, of our series um, on what it means to be the people of the well, uh, what I want to do is I kind of want to begin by recapping uh, like where we've been and what we've learned throughout this uh, series. Um, you, you might recall, um, if you were here in June, you might, might recall that we began this series by studying Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47. Uh, and then we kind of took a break over the summer as our family was gone and had some guest preachers. Um, and then we picked up again in early August, studying John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. And that's really where we've been the last couple of weeks. That's where we're going to go here in just a minute. This week is the final week of that six-week series um, as we focus on the last few verses in John chapter 4. Um, but what I thought it would be good for us to do before we uh, dive into our text for today, is I thought it'd be good for us to like step back for a minute, right? Kind of step back or even kind of hover up a little bit and uh, kind of get a, a bit of a highlight or a summary of where we've been, kind of catch a mountaintop view um, of what we've been uh, doing. Um, my hope is that, it, that that would help kind of cast the broad vision or picture of what we pray and hope the people of the well would become as we continue moving forward in our labor of, of planting. And so uh, you've got it on your handouts and you've also got it, should have it on the screen in front of you. Um, let me just kind of run through this real quick and hope it kind of, again, helps to kind of cast that vision. Uh, week one, uh, we learned that the early church was a gospel-centered church family, right? That's, that was the first thing we dove into as we were in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but the question that we really needed to wrestle with is what does it actually mean to be a gospel-centered church family? What does that mean? What does that look like? Because everybody and their sister and their dog and their cat and their lion in the backyard has a definition of what that looks like. And we wanted to go to the scriptures and actually ask God in his word to speak to us on what that means. And as we examine that text in Acts chapter 2, we learned that a gospel-centered church family is full of people uh, that are devoted wholeheartedly to the gospel, number one. They're awestruck by the power of the gospel. They're united by the message of the gospel. And they're motivated by the generosity of God in the gospel to be more generous. So that was week one. And then week two, uh, we learned that the early church was a family of gospel communities. And again, definitions are important and what God's word says on these things is extremely important. So we began to ask, what does it mean to be a family of gospel communities? What does that 
look like for us as we look at the scriptures. And as we examine that text in Acts 2, um, we learn that a family of gospel communities uh, is full of people who gather consistently, not inconsistently, but consistently, uh, in large groups and small groups. It wasn't just the large group, wasn't just the small group, but it was both. Large group and small groups while praising God gladly and generously. This is what characterized the early church um, as they gathered as a family of gospel communities, right? And then in week three, week three as we looked at Acts 2, again, we learned that the early church produced missionally engaged disciples who glorified God. And again, asking the same question. I'm sure you can probably pick up on a rhythm of, of how we were approaching this. Um, again, just asking, okay, what does the scripture say? And what does it look like? And how does Luke in the book of Acts um, describe what it looks like to produce missionally engaged disciples who actually glorify God? And as we looked at the text, as we looked at Acts chapter 2, um, we learned that a, that a church family actively produces missionally engaged disciples by praising God publicly. It means our public lives should be filled with the praise of God, right? People should see the way that we praise God through our, our lips and our actions. We should be marked by that in our workplaces, our friendships, our relationships, our family spaces. People should say, wherever you go, man, there go the footsteps of a man or a woman who praises God with their lives. So we talked about that. We saw that in the text. Um, we also saw that, that, uh, um, that being a missionally engaged disciple meant that we didn't only just praise God publicly, but we also live peacefully with others in our community and this is hard. You think about where we're at in America today. You think of the events of last week, right? Just a week ago. And how, how, how our community and, and our, our, uh, our nation really is in upheaval. Like, we feed on conflict. And it was really no different for the disciples then. Really no different. They were still living in a nation that was filled with conflict and upheaval. And yet they lived peacefully with other people in their community. They weren't combative. They lived at peace. They also experienced God's saving power together. People were becoming Christians day by day and worshiping God each day. And so that was kind of what it looked like to become missionally engaged disciples of glorify God. And the challenge to us was, was to really become that kind of people here at the well. And then we took a break, right, over the summer <coughs> while our family was gone. <clears throat> and we came back and we began studying John chapter 4. Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, where we've been the last couple of weeks. In the very first week, which was week chapter four of the series, we learned that God calls us to become Christ-encountering people, right? And again, what does that mean to be Christ-encountering people? And as we looked at what happened between Jesus and this woman at the well that, that week, um, we learned that uh, Jesus breaks down barriers, We've really kind of taken on this theme of barriers that stop us from becoming the people that God wants us to be and calls us to be. And so the barriers that we saw that week are like the barriers of place, right? And the barriers of person and the barriers of resource and the barrier of thirst. Those barriers oftentimes get in the way of us becoming Christ encountering people. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus broke down those barriers. He broke down the barrier of person. You are not a person that Jesus would not want to spend time around. You are a person that Jesus went to the cross for. There is no place in your life that Jesus is not willing to go to, to ransom you, to save you, to care for you, to change you. He'll go there, right? So person, place. Sometimes we believe that Jesus doesn't have the resources to give us what we need, and yet Jesus is the one who created the entire universe. Therefore, he has endless resources at his fingertips. The cross breaks down the barriers of person, place, resource, and thirst. Before Christ came and saved us, we thirsted for things that were contrary to who God is and what he wants for our lives. But the cross, when you come and you trust in Jesus, the cross breaks that barrier, and you are now free. You're free. You're not in bondage anymore living according to the sin that's had its grip on your heart. You're now free in Christ to live obediently to his commands of what he asks you to do, right? So those barriers are broken down on the cross. And then in the next week, which was week five, which was last week, right, we learned what, uh, that, that God calls us to become Christ-worshiping people. I have to be honest with you, last week's for me was 
Um, and now that I've prepared this week, last week's was my favorite message in the entire series. It rocked my world as I prepped it. Uh, and even as I preached it, it rocked me. It rocked me all week. There were such good things that we learned. God calls us to become Christ-worshiping people. And again, what does that look like? What does that look like, right? Um, we're not talking about like the dim lights and the style of the music and um, the kind of church. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about deep heart things and what it means to actually be someone who worships Christ every moment throughout the week. And there's barriers to that for us at times. And so what we talked about last week is we talked about the truth that Jesus broke down the barrier of sin because unchecked sin in our lives um, inhibits our ability to worship God. Um, you can be a believer and be struggling with sin, and at that point you can be struggling to worship God. But then the flip side of that, so that we don't pendulum swing to the wrong side of things, is that we don't worship God on the mountain of our obedience, do we? We worship him on the mountain of disobedience, which is what we learned in the text as the woman asked. So what mountain should we worship on? Uh, and so Jesus comes in by the power of the cross. He breaks down that barrier of sin. It also breaks down the barrier of false religion and the barrier of false worship objects. Oftentimes, we get objects in front of us that we begin to worship when Jesus should be the object of our worship. And so we talked about that from the text, and we learned tons about what it means to be Christ-worshiping people. And now, in this, in this last week, week six, uh, we're going to talk about the truth that God calls us to become Christ-sharing people. This is our final big idea in this series. Jesus calls us, God calls us, our Father in heaven calls us to become Christ-sharing people. Kind of the big, if you wanted to have a big statement, I think it's probably on the screen. It might even be on your handout. It's a big statement of the whole series combined together, one paragraph. Most of you were like, I didn't know Joe could do all this in one paragraph. I can't. I'm just telling you. I can't. So, um, so that's a gift from God that, that's, that this is here. Um, I think a big summarizing statement would be this. Like, we want to be a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God by becoming a Christ-encountering people, a Christ-worshiping people, and a Christ-sharing people. But the final question is, what does it mean to be a Christ-sharing people? What does it actually mean? So let's go to the text. We're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. John says this. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another one reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So here's the deal. Like, I can't think of a more satisfying experience than that experience of witnessing someone becoming a Christian. I can't think of a more satisfying experience in all of life than actually experiencing somebody moving from the camp of being God's enemy into the camp of being a part of God's family. 
Like that, that is an experience that, that I think is the most satisfying experience any of us can have. And I think what adds to that satisfaction that, that for me that I sense when I get to experience that <laughs> is when someone becomes a Christian who then turns around and also gets like super excited about what they've experienced. And now they want to share Jesus with everyone else all around them. And the result of that is that other people begin to get excited too and they become Christians. And then they all begin charging the gates of hell, right? Sharing their excitement about what Jesus is doing among them. This to me um, like puts a nice bow or nice frosting on top of the cake um, for me when it just comes to satisfaction and the joy and the experience of seeing people come to Jesus. Kind of like, like when one of my kids gets that thing they've always been wanted, like Lewis this last week got an Xbox, been saving for it and working for it. Um, one of my daughter's charity got herself a, uh, what is that called that you guys put the reeds in? They got a clarinet, and uh, she's, been, she's been waiting to get into middle school, <clears throat> been waiting to get into middle school and be able to join band. And uh, both these kids, man, when they got these things, they were so excited. Like, all they're doing is want to share with everybody. Charity's running around the house, blowing her clarinet, and everybody's like, stop it, please. Um, not as exciting for the rest of us. At times, depending upon what time of night it is. And, and, and Lewis is playing his Xbox, trying to play it 24-7, trying to get everybody to come play that with him. I mean, it's kind of the same experience, right? Uh, when, when you see somebody get something they've always wanted, and they're just so excited about it, they can't quit talking about it. And they're, they're like just inviting everybody else to come and to join this experience with them. It's super satisfying to be a part of something like that. And really, really, I think this is the picture of what it means to become a Christ-sharing person. This is really what it looks like for us to become Christ-sharing people, right? It's an exciting thing to experience that when it hits on all eight cylinders. When it sets off and it really happens, like dynamite, right? Which is crazy because if you go back to the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go back to Jerusalem, pray. I'm going to give you a gift of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you with power, dynamite power. And it set off, right? It set off because the early church couldn't stop sharing about Jesus. And we see the same thing in our text today. But sometimes when that experience doesn't happen, right? Or sometimes when the experience of that doesn't happen. Sometimes when the excitement that you thought would happen in somebody's life when they got what they always wanted doesn't happen, right? Like when my kid gets what he's always wanted, um, and he doesn't get excited, and they, they're not sharing it with everybody else. They're not inviting everybody else into that experience, right? And you begin to kind of wonder, like, man, um, what, what happened here? It's almost like <clears throat> when you see somebody get that thing they always wanted and they're not sharing it with everybody else, they're not excited about it, it's almost like uh, they're only concerned with their own experience, right? It's kind of like they find no satisfaction whatsoever in sharing what they think they have with other people. Instead, they almost appear to be more satisfied which is keeping this experience all to themselves, right? Taking their toy, whatever it was they got. It's like they believe that that thing was only for them to enjoy in the corner all by themselves, right? You ever, you ever see that happen in a kid's life when they get something? I've seen that a few times. I've probably done that a few times too. It's almost like a, a self-protective thing. Like, man, I got this thing that I always wanted. I don't want anybody else to touch it. Don't touch my new Xbox. Leave it alone, right? It's not your turn. It's my turn. You, you get, kind of get all that selfishness that starts to bubble up. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy when that happens. It's really the question I kind of want to wrestle with today um, for us because I think that sometimes uh, in the church, we can do this too. Um, and the question really, going back to that theme of barriers, is like what are the barriers that stop me from becoming a Christ-sharing person? Like I know that when we think about what it means to be a Christ-sharing person, like we're going to easily experience fear, right? Oh, man, i got to go share Jesus with somebody? That's kind of a scary thing, right? Where do I start? Where do I begin? How do I do this without just like beating people over the head with the Bible, right? Um, um, and so I think there's some fear involved in some of that, especially for those of us that are maybe more introverted than others. It can be kind of scary to come out of our shell and share 
Jesus with other people. And we could probably spend an entire series talking about what the Bible says about fear. Um, but what I want to do today is really look at our text and kind of ask, like, what's the theme beneath the theme for us on this? Um, what are the roots below our indifference to others and our indifference to actually sharing Jesus with others? What are the barriers beneath the fear that we feel when it comes to sharing Jesus with other people? What stops us from becoming Christ-sharing people? That's really the question I want to ask. And so number one, I want us to look at this first barrier that I see in the text, verses 27 through 30. The first, the first barrier I'm looking at is what I would call the conversion barrier. The conversion barrier. This is something that stops us from being a Christ-sharing people. <coughs> so the conversion barrier is like a brick wall, okay? If you imagine a brick wall inside of your head, it's like a brick wall that has a massive message painted on it that says this, you cannot give what you do not have. That's the barrier. It's a big brick wall that says, you cannot give what you do not have what you have not received. If you have not received the salvation that Christ offers by grace through faith, then you will not be excited to share that same gift with other people. You'll only be excited to tell other people how hard they must work to get to know Jesus. There will be no verbal confession of Christ and all of his loving grace for you and I. There will only be a verbal confession of do's and don'ts and check marks and checklists, right? There will be a lack of real change inside of you. There will be a lack of real change to back up your confession because what's happened is you've actually believed a false gospel and you may not have been converted from unbeliever to believer. That's why this is important to start here, this conversion barrier. And then what comes out of all that is you will actually lack the concern for others. We think about this for a minute. If you're here and you struggle with a lack of concern for others, don't want to be in community with other people, want to kind of hide out in your own little shell, that, that could be the fruit of believing a false gospel. Doesn't mean that you're not Christian. It might just mean there's some real immaturity and stunted growth because you lack the concern for being around other people. You don't see yourself as a gift to give to other people, right? Might lack the concern that's necessary to go the distance to see other people come to know Jesus. See, most scholars, as they um, talk about and look at this woman at the well, they believe that this woman who encountered Jesus there actually became a Christian. This is what they believe. And they believe that she was genuinely converted from being an immoral woman who lived her life at the beck and call of the men that she slept with and the sexual sin that she gave into, <coughs> they believed that she turned from that into a woman who actually verbally confessed her trust and her faith in Christ as her Savior, and they believed that she went on to live a radically changed life from before. Think about the radical change that is necessary for there to be genuine conversion in our hearts and lives. <clears throat> this is a key point of what happened in her life. You also see, I think, in her that there is a deep concern in her for other people to come and experience the presence of Christ the same way she had. Her verbal confession was simple. Think about her confession. Go back to the text. She simply said this, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. I believe this dude is Jesus. I believe this dude is the Christ. I think he's the Messiah. Do you think so too? That was her confession. It was simple. Her radically changed life was also obvious. Think about the radical change that took place in this woman's life. The fact that when she went back to town, she didn't head back to her old life is proof in the pudding, right? It's proof. She did not go back to her old life of chasing relationships with men she didn't go back to her house and fall back into sexual sin with the man that she was living with who was not her husband. She didn't do that. She didn't even take her bucket with her. And a lot of the scholars spend a ton of time talking about the significance of that bucket and the identity that she had wrapped up in that bucket in the way that she came to the well at midday to avoid everybody else in town because she'd been sleeping with their men, right? Like, you just imagine the place of shame and guilt that this woman felt. She leaves that bucket back. And, and most scholars, like I said, just believe that's super um, telling 
about what happened inside of this woman. She left it all behind and ran back to town for a completely different reason. She was no longer wrapped up in just surviving the mess of sin that she'd been living in. Her old concern for self-preservation by avoiding those people in town. And that was turned into something new. It was replaced by a brand new concern for people around her to come meet Jesus too. And the result, think about the result. The result was that the entire town came out with her to meet Jesus. This is significant. The entire freaking city comes out to meet Jesus. It's a shocking scene. If you don't catch this, you're missing it. Trust me, catch this, right? A prostitute who was an outcast of the city that morning becomes the evangelist who mobilizes an entire city to come meet Jesus that evening. She didn't waste any time. She didn't waste any time giving away what she had received. She didn't go back home and contemplate things for a while. She didn't keep her experience all to herself. She didn't see her encounter with Jesus as just being her own private encounter. Like, there's no doubt in my mind as I examine this text that this woman was genuinely converted. She was a Christian now. She was a Christ follower. The proof was in the pudding. <coughs> her verbal confession matched. Her radically changed life matched. And listen, in America today, it is popular to say, I'm Christian. I found Jesus. I'm going to a church but then totally lack the radically changed life. And I think oftentimes it's because we go, God's gracious, he is gracious, but then we miss the truth that God speaks to us, and therefore we prostitute what grace really is, and we turn it into something that's cheap, right? And this woman, man, she, she went back to town. Her radically changed life was, was now open concern for other people, rather than being afraid of everybody else around her. She wanted to share the good news with other people. Come see Jesus. I met him. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about me, and he loves me still. This is a woman who was not stuck behind the conversion barrier. Like it should be a compelling and motivating picture for us, right? The questions that this provokes for me are like these. Like, in what way am I stuck behind the conversion barrier, right? Right? Are there ways that I can be sharing Christ, Jesus, with other people verbally that maybe I'm not currently engaged in, right? People in my workplace or people, um, or pe like friends of mine or people in my family, are there ways that I can be sharing Jesus with those folks that I'm not currently doing that? Somebody in my neighborhood even, like just having a conversation with a next door neighbor that I don't know. Um, how could we engage that more? The question is like, is there something off in my life? This is a question we all need to ask. Is there something off in my life that doesn't back up my verbal confession? Would people look at me and say, yeah, you're professing Christ, but I see this big whopping zit on the front of your forehead and you're pretending like it's not there, right? Right? I mean, if I look in the mirror and I see a big whopping zit in my forehead, I'm, I'm getting rid of that thing, right? Um, if I don't know it's there, you know what I want people to do? I want people to, to like get past their... Um, uncomfortable feeling, be like, hey, yo, Joe, you got something there. You should get rid of that. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if I was like, leave me alone, dude. Don't talk about that. Like, that, that, that happens. Happens often. That was an uncomfortable conversation. Don't, don't talk to me about it. Oh, pretend like it's not there. None of us like the churches that pretend like it's not there, do we? Right? Is there something off in my life that doesn't back up my verbal confession? Some obvious sin in me that is unchecked or unchanged? Are there, ways, are there ways that I'm actually avoiding people so I don't have to give an account for my life? Think about that. Like sometimes avoid people so you don't have to give an account for what's actually going on deep down inside. Yet deep down inside what you really yearn for and long for and want is for people to care about you and, and, and know you, right? But then what we do is we, we cut ourselves off from that, right? Like I, I, I don't have time to go there. I got too much going on. I don't really like it there. But then the other flip side of that is like nobody cares for me. Nobody talks to me. We do this to ourselves, right? All of us do this to ourselves. Are there ways that, that you're avoiding people that, so you don't have to give an account for your life? 
Does your, life, does your lifestyle lack a, a deep concern? This is a question I have to ask myself. Does my lifestyle lack a deep concern to see other people come to meet Jesus too? Like, does, does my lifestyle lack that deep concern? Like, this woman who was a prostitute that morning turned into an evangelist that afternoon. What happened inside of her is that she, she, she got this deep, welling desire and concern for everybody back in town. Can you, can you imagine that? Like, people in town, what they, what they could have said? Like, nah, you're that lady. Like, you're asking me to come outside of town? No. And she just, like, busted past that barrier, went there, invited them, and they came. So, so my prayer on this, on this first barrier, is that, is that we would become a Christ-sharing people, right? We would become a Christ-sharing people who, who come out from behind that conversion barrier <coughs> and actually experience the fruit of genuine conversion in our lives. Where we, where we would begin to realize what it looks like and what it feels like to be genuinely saved by Jesus in such a way that we begin to share Jesus with other people. The second barrier that I see is what I would call the satisfaction barrier, verses 31 through 38. This barrier gets to the root of why we do what we do. I want you to think about that for a minute. Why do you do what you do? It gets at the root of why we share Christ with other people. So think with me for a minute this way. Maybe this will help to kind of get, get us moving in the right direction. Like think about why you share your experience of watching a Husker football game with other people, whether they lost or whether they won. Think about why you share that experience. If you're into Husker football and they won, you share that experience because you're super freaking excited that the Huskers just won, Right? You get a deep sense of satisfaction over that. And that's why you share that with other people. Think about your experience of trying out a new restaurant, that you really love their food. You want to share about that new restaurant. Hey, go try that restaurant out. Because it was deeply satisfying to go to that restaurant and eat their food. <coughs> or think about this. Think about the excitement that you feel when you think you found your soulmate, Right? When you think you finally found that person that just like completes you, like, what is that movie? Jerry Maguire, my favorite old movie. Like, you complete me, right? When you think you finally found that soulmate and you just want to share that with the entire world, it's because you have a deep sense of satisfaction when you think you found that person. And that's why you want to bring others into that experience as well. It's deeply satisfying, right? We want to invite others into the satisfying experiences that we have. And so think about it this way as you think about that. <clears throat> Doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense to say that when a professing Christian doesn't want to share Christ with other people, it's because they haven't really found satisfaction in Christ? Doesn't it make sense to say that? Now, maybe that person finds satisfaction of the kind of church that they're at or the kind of preacher that the church has or the programs that the church offers or the, or the friends that they have at the church. And, and all these things are good. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not bashing on those things because they're good, right? You want to have good programs, have good friends, or feel like you fit well, you want your preacher to do a pretty good job at least, right? Um, all, all those things are good. But the reason that people don't share Christ and they share those things instead, I think it's simply because they haven't found their satisfaction in Christ. I, th I think that they struggle to love Jesus in those moments. And may maybe it's that we love the idea of Jesus in those moments. Maybe we love the benefits that Jesus' church gives us. And so we share about those things rather than sharing about Jesus. Like, this is what I would call the satisfaction barrier. And I think we all struggle with it in many different ways. In our text, Jesus destroys that barrier. His disciples are still trying to figure out why he's associating with this woman, right, at the well. And maybe they think he's losing it a little, right? Uh, because he hasn't eaten in a while. Maybe they're thinking that Jesus isn't quite right when he's hungry, like gets hangry or something, becomes somebody totally different. It's a little bit crazy like the rest of us when we're getting hungry and the preacher's talking for too long, right? Um, maybe they think that's what's happening with Jesus. And so they try to get him to eat a little bit of food, if you remember, in our text. Um, they try to get him back on track. But Jesus' response is pretty telling, right? You look at the text, Jesus' response is great because in summary, what Jesus says in, uh, in verses 31 through 38 is this. 
He basically says that he's doing just fine because the way that he finds his satisfaction, the thing that satisfies him the most comes from living obediently to his father's command to seek and to save the lost. That's my summary. In other words, what, what, what Jesus is saying is that it's eternally satisfying to work for God in the work of evangelism. And Jesus even then tacks on this proverb about the harvest and sowing and reaping and working hard at evangelism in the context of community. It's interesting. If there was anybody that could have been a Lone Ranger Christian and done it all on their own outside of community, it would have been Jesus, right? Wouldn't you think? Perfect, right? Perfect. But here's the crazy thing. He came and he gathered disciples and he did it with them. He didn't do it alone. And the reason is, is because if Jesus had done that alone, you know what he would not have been doing? He would not have been imaging or mirroring one of the basic doctrines we believe in. It's the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, coexisting for all of eternity in community. If Jesus had been the Lone Ranger Christian that he could have been, right? I'm going to do this on my own, forget you. Right? I don't have time for you. I don't like you. If that would have been Jesus... He would have never imaged Father, Son, and Spirit in a good way. So he comes and he gathers disciples and they do this together. <clears throat> Moral of the story here is that Jesus is saying that while physical food is important, <clears throat> and I would add, I'm deeply satisfying. Deeply satisfying. Any of you that have ever eaten a juicy, fantastic steak or a burger, a chicken salad, cottage cheese, I'm just trying to find different things that, so I can just try to hit everybody, right? Any of you who finds a love for food and carries a frame quite like I do, um, you know that food is deeply satisfying, and this is why we eat food together as a community, right? Deeply satisfying, um, but doesn't even come close to sharing the gift of eternal life with people who are spiritually famished. Just come close to that. The reason that this is so satisfying is this, because it's of the will of God that we do this. This is why Jesus said, man, I get, I get jacked up over the, doing the will of God. I get jacked up over doing what God commands me to do, right? That's why Jesus is saying that, because that's what actually nurture, nurtures and nourishes our souls, is to do the commands of God and to do what he's called us to do. The reality is that God instructs us. Think about it this way. This might be too big and too heady. But I want you to think about it this way. It's something I thought of. Um, God instructs us to seek him, right? He instructs us to seek him with our entire being. And when we do that, what happens? He promises to give us the desires of our hearts, right? Which implies that as we seek God, and when we are desiring him as we seek him, our desires become his desires, right? And in the midst of our desires becoming his desires, what God does is he actually gives us what we desire at that point and what we are beginning to desire at that point is to actually desire God more than anything else. And so then what God does is he gives himself to us because we've been desiring him and in the midst of that, what happens is we're able to give away what we've received. You receive the presence of God, and then when you share Christ, what you're actually giving away is not some trumped-up, six-step plan for sharing the gospel. It's actually you giving from the very presence of God and giving that presence of God to others so that they might experience the presence of God too, okay? Sounds deeply satisfying to me. Questions that this evokes in me are these. Like, am I satisfied with God? Do I find my satisfaction with God? Or am I, am I looking for satisfaction somewhere else? Does my life prove that I'm growing in being satisfied with God? Am I so satisfied with Jesus that I can't help but to love him more and more each day? Am I so satisfied with Jesus that I can't help but to share him with others? Am I eager to invest and labor and work alongside other brothers and sisters in our church family to share Jesus with others. So that, that's my prayer, is that God would take those questions and just apply them to us, and that we would come out from behind that satisfaction barrier, quit finding our satisfaction in other places, because let me tell you, those other wells that you and I can drink at, they lead to death. 
Only in the presence of God will there be life. And for you and I to be life-giving, Christ-sharing people, we must practice being in the presence of God and be satisfied with that. And let me just tell you something. That's not easy work. That's, that can be hard work to sit and to say, Jesus, I'm sitting here until your presence comes and quiets me. I'm sitting here until your presence is here. And be like Moses in the Old Testament, who after years and years and years of wandering around, when he learned that God was not going to go into the promised land, heaven, with him, when he learned that, when he learned that God was going to send an angel with him instead, right? When God was like, I'm not going with you, but I'm going to send an angel with you. Moses' response simply was, then I'm not moving. That's the place we all need to be. I will not go there if your presence is not going to sustain me, Lord. I want to be satisfied in you and you alone. That's the place I pray God breathes us all to. The third barrier I see is in verses 39 through 42. Uh, this is called the belief barrier. Now, in our American culture, <clears throat> it's kind of ingrained in us to be drawn to personality. Think about that. Some of the personalities I've been drawn to over the years have been like The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, um, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne. Like, these are some of the characters and personalities I've been drawn to. It's ingrained in us as, as human beings, really. Not just in the American culture. It's ingrained in us as human beings because something in the personalities that we're drawn to actually speaks deeply to our souls, something about the person and character of God. You just I'm not even going to unpack that. Just take that home and just check that out next time you watch TV. Like, whether it's the hero or whether it's the villain sometimes or whether it's the damsel in distress right? Or it's the, or it's like the, the Bill Nye science guy kid that's like got, figuring out all this stuff. Like there's something in those personalities, characters that we're all drawn to that really points back to um, something deep inside of us that's missing that only God can, can fulfill. Um, but we're all drawn to personality. And sometimes I would say, sadly, it's no different within the church. Sometimes we're drawn to personality so much um, that, that oftentimes the success of a church rises and falls on the personality of the ability of the pastor or the evangelist. And, and, and like, don't hear me wrong, um, like leaders must lead well, right? And the health of a church family does depend on this vital piece being in place. Leaders need to lead well, and we need to be people of character, and we need to be competent in what we're doing, right? And there needs to be chemistry in the church family, in terms of leading. That's all true. The health of a church may depend upon that. But the downfall or the barrier that I kind of want to speak to as we think about this um, is the uncanny, uh, kind of the uncanny and, and oftentimes super unhealthy um, tendency for us as believers uh, to only believe in Jesus because so-and-so said so, Right? Only believe in Jesus because so-and-so said so. Now, not very many of us would want to admit that, right? Most of us aren't going to walk around and be like, well, you know, because my grandma taught me so much, I now followed you. I mean, we'll say that, but, but we're also going to try to own it like it's our own. So it's kind of hard to get at this one, right? To understand or, or to even self-evaluate where our um, relationship with Jesus begins to like ride on the coattails of someone else. To have a hand-me-down faith. And I'll be honest, I can't unpack this one completely. I can just say that I know it's there for us, for everybody, it's there. Um, but this kind of discipleship, and this one I want to guard against, this kind of discipleship always leaves a wake of disaster behind it. And the reason is because the people that are attached to that ministry never develop a personal and healthy belief in Jesus that then motivates them to become mature Christ followers who share Jesus with other people. Sometimes it's almost like a codependent system where people only rely on a parent or a pastor or a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or, or anybody else. It it's, oftentimes becomes like a codependent system which becomes really unhealthy and sick, right? Um, where we're depending on somebody else for that sense of God's presence there. And when we do that, we begin to place our hope and our faith in people rather than Jesus himself. And we begin to believe 
something that's only handed down to us rather than believing because Jesus actually spoke to us himself. See, in our text, John tells us that many people from that woman's town, right? Many of them believe because she told them about her encounter with Jesus. John actually records it that way. <coughs> they began to believe because she told them about her encounter with Jesus. And they were so excited about the whole thing. They were so excited about this woman's excitement that they invited Jesus to stay with them for a couple of days. And after he'd stayed there a few more days, then, then John tells us that the people then told the woman this. People were like, hey, we no longer believe just because of that woman's exciting testimony. We actually believe in Jesus as a savior of the world because we've had a personal encounter with Jesus where we personally heard him speak to us. Listen, listen, when you and I are struggling to believe in Jesus, it's, it's not because someone didn't do a good job of presenting Jesus in a neat and tidy and emotionally driven package where our hearts were like moved and fluttered because everything went right, because the quality of the speaker was so good, right, or the presentation was so awesome. We struggle to believe in Jesus simply because we get stuck behind the barrier of belief where we try to ride the coattails of someone else's belief. And the only remedy for this, there's only one remedy. The only remedy for this is to get ourselves in a position where we can hear Jesus speak to us personally. It's the only remedy. There's, there's no other phone calls or counseling sessions or text messages or emails or books that you can read or sermons you can listen to or podcasts you can go after. Or there's nothing you can go after. The only remedy for that issue is to actually get in the presence of Jesus and hear him speak to you and to go the distance and wait for him and beg him to speak to you. <clears throat> this raises some questions for me as I think about it. As I've been studying this this week, I've been asking myself these questions. Like, what coattails? Whose coattails? Whose coattails am I trying to hitch a ride on? <clears throat> like, am I more concerned with hearing Jesus throughout the week? Or, or am I more concerned with what so-and-so says about Jesus? But don't hear me wrong. Like, it's important to listen to faithful preachers. It's an important part of our diet, Okay. <clears throat> The question is, is like, am I pulling away um, to quiet places so that Jesus can speak with me and so that he can bolster my belief and my trust in him? Or does the endless list of excuses and blame playing get in the way? Let's be honest. We all have some great excuses. But the reality is most of us are really wasteful with our time. Um, and we really need to be in the presence of God. Really need to. For me, like, am I just rushing from one commentary to the next or one blog to the next or one podcast to the next? And then in so doing, am I actually just harming myself and stunting my own growth? My prayer for us is that we would become a Christ-sharing people who come out from behind the belief barrier, right? And that we would actually, in so doing that, hear Jesus speak to us personally so that we can share Christ authentically with other people. So in conclusion, I want to make a, a few confessions too. As I study this, I was thinking about this. I remember writing this paragraph um, coming out of this text. This is the first paragraph I wrote. It was just kind of my heart's response to what I was wrestling with. Like for me, it's too easy. You guys, you guys that know me, it's too easy for me to fall into like an unhealthy or kind of a dysfunctional view of God's mission and believe that somehow... Um, the results of missional effort, like people being made disciples, churches being planted, sustainability, and so on and so forth, holiness in other people's lives, people actually authentically repenting from sin, all that stuff that goes into it. For me, I, I sometimes get into this unhealthy and dysfunctional view of that, and I begin to believe that all of that relies on me to make it happen. Like, that's part of my struggle, right? But the reality is that God is the one who limitlessly and generously empowers, so he gives power to, and then he also affects, means he creates. 
the results of mission. Our mission is to seek and save that which is lost. Our mission is to be disciple makers. Our mission is to go into the world. It's Matthew 18. I can share this other paragraph with you, the summary statement of our church's mission and what we've been preaching over the last six weeks again. But the reality is that the mission for us is to help people experience the actual presence of God so that they can then go share that actual presence of God with others. So my prayer for us is that the Lord would protect me and us as a church um, from the temptation to build something around me. Or, or to build something around any other personality other than Jesus. My prayer is that the well for us as a people and as a church, that we would continue to become a people who authentically proclaim Christ from a place of actually experiencing the presence of Christ. That's my prayer. So the summary statement to close the series up is this. We want to become a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God by becoming Christ-encountering people, Christ-worshiping people, and Christ-sharing people. The question, I think, at the end is, what barriers are standing in the way for you becoming a person who is actually engaged and invested in that big vision? That's the question. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for our time spent in uh, this series over the last six weeks. Thank you uh, uh, for your word, God. Thank you for the description of the early church in Acts 2. And then thank you for this picture of Jesus meeting with the woman at the well. Lord, help us to continue to become the people that you've called us to be. We ask that in the name of Jesus, and we ask that your spirit would empower us to continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close here, guys, we're gonna close with communion. Um, we say this every week, communion is for believers. If you've trusted in Christ, this meal is for you because what you're doing is you're celebrating broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And you're making a public proclamation yet again that you are trusting in Jesus and that you deeply need his presence. If you're here and you're not a believer, we just ask that you not take part in the meal um, because it would be like this kind of mindless activity that you would get into. It's not that we don't want you to engage in the meal. We do. We just want you to do that when you become a believer. That moment could have been now. You could have been moved by something in the message where you begin to realize the horror of your sin, where you realize the hopelessness of what lies in front of you if you haven't trusted in Christ. And maybe you were moved to a place where you said, I want to trust in Jesus. He died on the cross for me. I want to be changed. So then we would just invite you to come and, and celebrate the meal with us and we'd like to pray with you. And in fact, for everybody, as you come, celebrate this meal with us. Um, we'd like to take a minute and pray with you if you have any needs. So we'll be asking you that. Um, so let's close in worship, communion, and prayer. Thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys a bunch. Let's do You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.